Listener Production. Hello and welcome to the Weekend Briefing with me, Tom Tilly. Yeah, Jamila has lost her voice, unfortunately, so obviously a bit hard to do this job. So I've jumped in to help out, but she should be back next week with the Weekend Briefing. Um, Today our guest is Dr. Norman Swan. You'll know him well, but you maybe don't know the story behind the man. His COVID analysis for the ABC has made him one of the most recognisable media identities of the last two years. If you look at WHO reporting data and look back at where Italy was when they had four or 500 cases, we are between 12 and 20 days behind Italy. Victoria is probably four or five days behind New South Wales and the line's going straight up. So those comments are from early in the pandemic and in March 2020, Norman Swan was one of the first and the strongest voices sounding the alarm on COVID. A lot of people weren't taking it seriously because we'd never been through something like this before. Now, as you could hear from those comments, he wasn't always right. And the role he got thrust into came with great challenges and a lot of scrutiny as well. So as Jamila does so well here on The Weekend Briefing, we're going to get a lot more background about who Norman Swan really is and how he came to be in this role. You'll find out that he's actually been reporting on health science for the ABC since the 1980s. He's going to talk about his upbringing in Scotland, how he's handled the the rise to fame during COVID and why he even managed to fit in writing a book in that time around general health and what that was all about. And I'm also going to give you my own weekend list, very on brand, some very retro choices from me. Stick around for that first. Let's get into our interview with Dr. Norman Swan. Norman Swan, welcome to the weekend briefing, which is different from the weekday briefing because we can go basically anywhere. Okay, you know, you know you're scaring me, Tom. <laughs> usually on, on the briefing, I know exactly where I'm going, but you know, I'll, I'll just trust you and you lead me on. Okay. We want to find out more about you personally because for so many people, you really have become an important player, an important source of information during the pandemic, but you have such a fascinating backstory going right back to Scotland. Tell us a little bit about your childhood and why your family changed their name. Yeah, well, I grew up in Glasgow. My parents, despite the fact that I still speak with a very strong Scottish accent, there's not a drop of Scottish blood running in my veins. Well, it depends depends what you call Scottish blood. I mean, I was born in Scotland, traditional Scottish blood. So my parents are first generation migrants. I mean, my grandparents arrived Uh, like many Jewish families did in Britain and in Australia too, fleeing the pogroms in the Jewish Pale of Settlement in what's now Russia, Ukraine, uh, the former Soviet republics, Ukraine, Lithuania, in particular, Estonia. And they fled. And in the case of my great-grandparents and my grandparents, they fled and they thought they were going to America. It's a classic story, which you hear time and time again in Britain. And they got off the boat and realized that, in fact, they were in Scotland and, and not <laughs> on Ellis Island in New York. And in fact, my great-grandfather on my mother's side got uh, pissed off at this and he got on a boat to New York. Uh, this is in the late 19th century. Didn't like it and came back to Glasgow. And um, essentially, my family is... Russian Jewish or Ukrainian Jewish. In fact, just before COVID, I went back to Odessa, which is where part of the family came from. And they settled 
in the Gorbals, which is south of the River Clyde in Glasgow, um, a slum area which, which received migrants, Irish migrants, Jewish migrants, a real mix. And then as time went on and they worked hard, they moved out into uh, the suburbs and made lives for themselves. And that's the environment in which I grew up, tinged with Scottish culture as well. So it wasn't the healthiest of environments. My mother had a chip pan always on the stove. We probably had fried potatoes once or twice a day, every day of the week. Um, West of Scotland has one of the highest rates of coronary heart disease in the world, and it's no big surprise. We can come back to that. But why I changed my name? I was born with the name Swirsky, uh, which comes from uh, the name of a town called Sphere in the Jewish Pale of Settlement. And my father went, my father was a terrible businessman. So he's a musician. His first love was music. And he ran away from home, joined a dance band during the war, came back and made the mistake of not continuing music full time and went to his father's business. And they were terrible business people. To give you an idea of how terrible they were, <laughs> my grandfather's name was Sam Swirsky. Just remember, his name was Sam Swirsky. And he was in the car trade and he had a garage in the Gorbals serving the Jewish community. So there were the car repairs, they sold cars and that sort of thing. And... In the post-war years, he set up this business, and Sam Swirsky called it SS Motors, serving the Jewish community. That's how good a marketer my <laughs> grandfather was. Wow, really captured the zeitgeist there. Yeah, that's right. And so they went bankrupt, surprise, surprise. And my father was out of work. We actually were really struggling for a while, and he couldn't get work. He decided that he would change his name from Swirsky to Swan which some of his relatives had done. And that's when I was about the age of 10. And a week after he changed his name, he got a job. Now, that could have been a pure coincidence or it could be good old-fashioned Scottish anti-Semitism. Yeah. Unfortunately, it sounds like it might have been the latter, but I guess there's just so many amazing stories of what <coughs> Jewish families have been able to do since that, the incredible success stories around building businesses after they've migrated to to other countries and escape the persecution they were facing in Europe. And then obviously, as you're pointing out there, some of the challenges they faced when they arrived in those new countries as well. And it, it, this, I guess, sort of jumps a long way ahead in your story. But as you were rising to fame for some people for the first time during the pandemic, but you've, you've done so many incredible things, won gold walkleys and been on commercial TV as well as the ABC over the years. But as you were doing that... Your son, Jonathan Swan, also has a big moment where he steps up from being a good political journo from Australia, who then went to America, to one of the most famous in America during that time because of that massive viral moment he had interviewing Donald Trump. And I think a lot of us mm. thought, hang on a minute, there's something going on with the Swan family. These guys are incredibly <laughs> smart, successful people, clearly so driven and I'd love to hear your thoughts. What you've just described about your background seems to have played a role. Do you feel that way, that it's really driven you and put the fire in the belly in the Swan family? My kids were brought up to feel that they, that they, had, they were not entitled to anything. They had to work for, for whatever they got and that they had to be the first at work and the last to leave. So I don't think it's a particularly Jewish thing. I do think it's just a, an attitudinal thing that you, you've got to work for what you've got. And all three of my kids have that, which I'm really proud of. For me, and I, and I suppose they saw this as they were growing up, 
I was pretty scarred by the experience of my father going bankrupt, losing all our money, and really struggling at a very formative time in my childhood, you know, 10, 12, 11, 12 years old. In fact, it went on for quite a few years. And not that they had very much money to start with, but we really went down to very little and uh, lived in genteel poverty. I have a fear of that happening. Mm. In other words, I know what it's like to lose everything. I don't ever want that to happen to me. I don't take it for granted that I've got a job for life at the ABC. And so my attitude is that every program that I do, everything that I do is you're only as good. And, and most people in the media think that actually, that you're only as good as your last show. Yeah. You're only as good as your last story. And therefore, you're, you, you know, people think there's this romance about being in the mm. media. But in fact, it's this constant, it's a bit like being an actor. It's just this constant insecurity that you've got to fight, that you've got to achieve. Yeah, I totally get you on that. It's a, it's the same for me. I've worked at the ABC a long time and I've stepped outside of that. And I too have that same hunger, the same fear of your, you feel like your career could sort of stop at any moment based on the quality of the last thing you did in public. You want to look into lots of other things, whether that's writing books or working with other people and, and I guess spread the risk. Yep, that's right. That's right. So it's been a really interesting time for you, obviously. Um, it felt like in March there was a bit of a, a dearth of understanding and also potentially a risk of Australians being too relaxed about COVID. And it seemed by the way you spoke in that first couple of months that that was a, a fear that you had, that Australia's politicians and the public wouldn't take this seriously because we hadn't had any real experience with pandemics before, except for, you know, 100 yeah. years ago, which most people aren't alive to remember. Yeah. A lot of things came together with this pandemic for me. When I was at medical school, I always had an interest in public and population health. When I started broadcasting, AIDS came along, when I HIV AIDS emerged in the early years of my broadcasting. So that was a pandemic. Around that time, I, people were surprised that this new virus had come along. And the world was behaving as this, this was the first new virus in the 80s mm. to have hit humankind. And I knew it wasn't the first and it wasn't going to be the last. And I actually made in the early 90s or late 80s, early 90s, a four-part documentary series for Channel 4 in the UK on pandemics and where they came from and predicting there would be more and how they would emerge. So I've always had an interest in that. And of course, we have had flu pandemics since then, but nothing of this. And I actually never thought I'd live through a pandemic, even though I predicted that the, mm. there, there would be more. So I was kind of ready for it. And the thing about COVID is that no textbook of public health will actually have to be rewritten because of COVID. It's followed the pattern of pandemics for thousands of years. If you read Daniel Defoe's account of the plague years, it reads like COVID-19 in January, February, March 2020, because we had no vaccine, we had no treatment, and we had to go to social distancing, and you saw prejudice, and it created the, an even bigger fracture between the advantage and disadvantage in, within our own communities and internationally. So it was obvious to a, a group of epidemiologists in Australia, who, by the way, were not being consulted by the government. Mm -hmm. So there were a group of people in Australia who knew, and you and I have spoken about this before, who knew about epidemics. They had been out in the field dealing with them, and they were not the people being consulted by the federal government. And we had a plan that was based on influenza, 
for a virus that was not going to behave like influenza behaves. So what you do with influenza is you do one thing and you wait and see whether it has an effect. Then you do some other thing. It's incremental. Whereas with the coronavirus, mm. and by the way, the people who knew what they were talking about were not surprised that the next pandemic was a coronavirus. They had war-gamed a coronavirus in the United States a couple of years beforehand. And it behaves differently. And you were looking down the funnel of a disaster. And as a journalist, do you make a call? And in that week, which some people will remember, the third week of March or thereabouts, 2020, there was the Grand Prix in Melbourne, 250,000 people turning up probably some drivers arriving from Monza with COVID. You had a big basketball game in Western Australia, and you had the Prime Minister not just doubling down, but tripling down, that he was off to see the Sharks play mm. with 80,000 people. And it just seemed like madness to me, and I made the call. I'm not saying that I made the difference, but as a journalist, it was, it was actually an awkward thing to do, yeah. but I would have never forgiven myself it was what I knew from the textbooks, but it was also what I knew from the five or six people in Australia who actually understood pandemics and epidemics and what they were saying. And of course, some commentators said, oh, I'm, the, uh, I'm this Jeremiah, I'm predicting doomed destruction. And of course, he's wrong, nothing's happened. But of course, when prevention works, mm. nothing happens. If you don't smoke, you don't get lung cancer. Yeah. If you wear your seatbelt, you don't end up in hospital with a car crash. That's the success of it. And you just need to compare ourselves to the UK that let, who let it rip in 2020 for, you know, with an idea that they were going to achieve herd, some notional herd immunity. 45,000 people died in the UK up to about June, July 2020 in the search for herd immunity. That's what we could have been like. And if you don't believe it, just look what's happened with Omicron. So I'd like to push into that awkwardness. I'm also a journalist and that's what we do. I guess what you're hinting at there is that you, in a sense, made a political decision because you made a judgment that our political leaders weren't responding to the data, weren't really understanding the history of pandemics and not taking it seriously. As you point out, Scott Morrison saying he's still going to the footy, even though we're on the the brink of what's turned out to be a two plus years pandemic. Do you acknowledge that that you made a political call there, that you, I guess, used journalism to push politicians in a certain direction that you deem to be the right call? I, so I, I, what I think that the call I made was declaring what the science was and declaring that the science was contrary to the scientific advice that the governments were getting, particularly the Commonwealth government. Um, the state government's we're actually following the evidence much more closely than the federal government. And in fact, the federal government was pushed into action by the state governments whose chief health officers were following the evidence. So I think it was a declaration of evidence. But be under no illusion, and this is not party politics, but yes, you're right. Politics cause pandemics, and they always have. The bug is actually almost the least important part of a pandemic. Bats probably throw off pandemic viruses on a regular basis, and other animals do too, but you've got to get a conjunction of circumstances for a pandemic to take off. And that is somebody's got to be passing by. You've got to have a circumstance where you get a spreading event. I want to ask you about 
personal bias because I think the pandemic's been fascinating for revealing our true values as individuals. Risk tolerance is something that comes up a lot. Individualism, willingness to join together and collectivize. How much are you willing to sacrifice short term for the long term? And it's really polarized people. Now, when I've heard your analysis, my initial reaction as a very risk tolerant person, I've paid the price for that, unfortunately, many times in my life. I was like, oh, Norman, too pessimistic. Is it really going to be that bad? And then you get into that tricky space you mentioned before where your dire predictions didn't come true on several occasions. But that arguably, as you've said, was because we actually took the precautions that you were kind of stamping your fist about. Do you feel like your personal position on some of these dynamics is overly cautious or purely data and science driven? I don't go out on a limb and I consult others and I bring together the information of people who know far more than me. And these people I respect and they understand the pandemic. Let's just take, for example, the outbreak in New South Wales Mm. in June of 2021. The New South Wales government employed techniques that had failed in Victoria in June 2020, you know, taking a suburb approach, being slow to institute masks, not necessarily communicating well with multicultural communities, mm. different languages, different cultures. That's not being a Jeremiah and being overly predicted. That's just saying we've got evidence in our own country within a year of what failed, and yet we're repeating that mistake. But then the Melbourne and approach didn't work with Delta either, eventually. So the calls to go harder in Sydney seemed to lose credibility because the same thing happened in Melbourne in terms of their outbreak, despite tanking a more comprehensive citywide approach. Well, remember, the Melbourne outbreak came from Sydney and there was multiple seeding events that came from New South Wales. You could argue if New South Wales had actually controlled it better, Victoria would have been more protected. So there was multiple seeding events in Victoria. But I'll I'll call criticism and say that. I mean, the Mike Ryan of the World Health Organization back in, I think, February 2020 said the thing with coronavirus is you've got to act quickly, you've got to act maximally and beg for forgiveness later. The virus will always win. This little virus has no brain. It can't even survive by itself outside the body, but it's programmed exquisitely for survival and will always win unless you take precautions. And this is what we're seeing even now. What we had in 2020, which we never had during the plague years, was technology. And we were able to test for it. And we had these vaccines ready to go. And it's just been the most amazing thing to see. And with 90 odd percent coverage in Australia, Omicron has been a pretty mild event, although too many people are dying. But nonetheless, you're just seeing the amazing results of vaccines because it's not because it's a mild virus. Well, that's what I want to ask you. So, yeah, given the much lower hospitalization and death rates with Omicron, how much of that do you put down to the vaccine and how much do you put that down to Omicron not being uh, as severe as Delta? It's mostly vaccine. Omicron's less severe than Delta, but it's probably just as severe as the Wuhan virus, the original virus. So there's, there's a lot of misunderstanding here. People think, oh, you know, it's a less severe virus. Subsequent variants that came out were more virulent than Wuhan. And Omicron's probably gone back to the virulence of Wuhan, but you just 
you know, Wuhan, as I said before, killed 45,000 people in Britain in the first six months of the pandemic. Mm. Unbelievable numbers in the United States. So th that's what you would have got here if we hadn't been vaccinated. It's certainly better than Delta. We're reaping the benefits of vaccination. Now, Norman, I sort of touched on before about the pandemic revealing a lot of people's own true values or, or their biases. For me, I was surprised that I was quite libertarian and, and the calls for the strict, <laughs> for the strict measures. I, re I really struggle with them, but I, I know that I'm not an expert. I know nothing about epidemiology, so I never wore my opinions very strongly, but my, my internal processes and reactions, and as a journalist, you learn to sort of filter them out so you can give good quality, impartial analysis. So for me, I was quite surprised that I have high risk tolerance and I really struggle with authority more than, more than I realised. Mm. What have you learned about yourself? What reactions have you had that have even surprised you in this strange time where you've been under so much pressure? It's a really good question. And I, I think we've all got a bit of a libertarian in us. You know, we value our freedom. We don't want to be told what to do. We want to retain our agency. And I've just written... You know, this book that I've just written, mm. so you think you know what's good for you. There's a very big section on that, which is about agency and control. And it's a very powerful thing. And there's really solid research that shows that if you feel that you're losing agency over your life, you feel stressed and you feel chronically stressed. And that is not just bad for your psychological health. It's actually bad for your physical health. You need to feel empowered. And it drives us, right? Of course, and that sense of agency is really potent and it's easy to lose it. So that's really important. Yeah. But the, you balance that against some interesting studies is why have countries like Denmark, Australia, New Zealand done well here, countries like America done not so well? And it's the extent to which you moderate that kind of libertarian thing, which is actually good for your health. But hang on a sec, Norman, you've, you've dodged the question. What surprised you about yourself? Well, it's, what surprised me was that I was fighting that agency too. So in other words, I had that same feeling. Really? Uh, yeah, and it came to me. And, and I could really understand why people were, were resisting it. And I, and I really felt it strongly, but realized that you actually had to act for the common good as well. So I recognized that in myself. Just as, I'm just this Anne Rand meme. <laughs> well, you did well to really rein that in then and to talk about those strict measures that, you know, in the short term reduce so much of that personal empowerment that we both value so much. Great to dig a little deeper with you, Norman. Um, you know, well done on a couple of big years for you. You know, really interesting to hear more about your backstory. Thanks for your time. Thanks, Tom. That was the one and only very recognisable voice of Dr. Norman Swan from the ABC. If you want to hear more from him on a regular basis, check out Coronacast. It's popular for a reason. It's all the latest information on COVID. Um, you can also check out his book, So You Think You Know What's Good For You. That's at all good bookstores. It's now time for My Weekend List. My book recommendation, something that I just read this week and we did an interview about it in yesterday's briefing, the Friday app, is Beyond Belief, How Pentecostal Christianity is Taking Over the World. The author is Elle Hardy. She's an Australian who's traveled to 12 different countries exploring all the vast, bizarre corners of the Pentecostal community 
So obviously it's a pretty personal one for me. I also grew up in Pentecostalism and I'm releasing my own book about it in a few months. It started with the whole history of the whole movement. It also looked at Hillsong and why the Australian brand of Pentecostalism is doing so well, particularly in America. But probably the most interesting part of the book is this group of Pentecostal Christians in America pursuing the seven mountain mandate. And they want to dominate politics, business, education, seven different spheres of modern society. And it says that these have been conquered by demons and believers have to overtake them and conquer them. In the US, it's becoming very powerful and it's sort of the theological wing of Trump and his MAGA movement. So find out what lengths they're going to do that, how influential that movement is, plus travel to all corners of the strange and wonderful, sometimes very bizarre parts of the Pentecostal community. So that's Beyond Belief by El Hardy. Totally recommend that. And um, a show that's been um, on the TV at my house recently, cue the theme music for anyone who was around in the 90s or whenever it came out. I don't know, maybe it was older than that. The original Sea Change is on Netflix. Diver Dan, played by David Wenham. Sigrid Thornton as the bolshy Melbourne lawyer who moves out to small seaside town and tanks on the town mayor. It's absolutely classic stuff and it's, um, yeah, really trickling some nostalgia into my brain and um, loving that one. So if you've never seen it before, I hope it actually stands the test of time and it's not just totally self-indulgent retro trip, but I think it's pretty good television. Excuse me? I need to get across the bridge into Pearl Bay. It's not possible, I'm afraid. It's okay to me. Oh, put your scuba gear on then. All right, that's it for me, hanging out with you on the weekend briefing. Hope you liked it, because I'll be back Monday at 6am in your feed. Listener.